Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my comrade, Derek Davison, and we are excited to welcome back to the program Sam Hunicke. Uh, Sam is an assistant professor at George Mason University, and he's also the author of States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. And Sam is doing a series now on the history of gay life in uh, Germany, roughly from the 19th century onward. So Sam, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. I'm really excited about this. I didn't. I'm. I'm trying not to read ahead, but it sounds like everything's really good right now <laughs> yeah. in, in Germany, and it's going to be good times to come. So I'm. I'm excited for this episode. Exactly. So as Derek is, is implying, we we ended in the mid 1920s, and things only get better from there. Um, so uh, as we were talking about for a second off mic, not much happens um, in this history in the mid 1920s, but it's really the Great Depression that uh, engenders a, a hinge point, a, a turning point in the history of gay life in Germany. So Sam, why don't we start there? What does the Depression do to Germany first, just to give people a bit of a context, and then how does it affect uh, gay life? Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with the Great Depression and sort of what it does in the U.S., right? It it leads to, a, as the name suggests, a depression, an economic depression. Uh, and in the U.S., it, right, it, it really leads to a sort of opening for a new kind of politics in the form of FDR and the New Deal and, and so on and so forth. And so in Germany, we have a fairly similar phenomenon at least initially, right, the the Great Depression also ushers in a depression, an economic depression in Germany. And one of the really important things to bear in mind is that, as we've talked about in sort of earlier episodes, Germany after World War I is a defeated nation. The Treaty of Versailles is imposed on it. And part of that is the infamous war guilt clause, which saddles Germany with basically solitary guilt for starting uh, World War I. And part of this is that onerous reparations are exacted on question. <laughs> do you think they were onerous? Because when I was in graduate school, when I was doing the whole German history field, the real like Isabel Hall school of things was they actually weren't that onerous. So uh, I haven't kept up with that historiography in you know seven years at this point. But where are we on that? It was were they actually onerous? I mean, psycho psychically, yes. I, I feel like psychically, probably one of the biggest effects was the reparations were the reparations, but when we're talking materially, what's the consensus on that one now? Um, they, I don't have like a specific number for you, but yes, they were, especially the early reparations were quite onerous. Um, and then they keep getting revised down and down as the sort of Western allies. I mean, they were intended to be onerous, right? The the um, Western allies, in particular France, really wanted to sort of prevent Germany's uh, ability to wage war in the future, and so they were intended to be onerous. And then, as it became apparent that you know both both psychologically, I think I think psychologically they were yet more onerous than they actually were, right? I mean that. That is certainly true. But basically, in the in the 1920s, the German economy stabilizes, and what they're able to do is essentially have access to American credit markets, which then allow, it allows them to borrow money to both sort of prop up the German economy, fund the German government, and then pay off these reparations to uh, France and the UK, which allows, in turn, those countries to pay off war debts uh, to the U.S., so there's this sort of triangle, like almost Ponzi scheme going on in the 1920s that's sort of propping up the, the global economy. <laughs> you heard it's it here first. The capitalism's a Ponzi what? scheme. <laughs> Come on. The U.S. The first time ever said some, that. Some crazy financial system where all the money just winds up coming back to the U.S. I mean, what, this is unprecedented, Who's surely. ever heard of such a thing? Uh, and, and then, you know, Germany only finishes paying off this war debt in like the early 2000s. So, you know, it, I guess we can get into arguments about what precisely constitutes onerous. But I think th they, were, they were certainly severe reparations, and, and they were, you know, a big part of Germany's budget and, and sort of um, how the government thought about uh, its, its sort of expenditures. So, so anyway, the Great Depression, what it really does to Germany is it interrupts this flow of credit that allows it to pay off the reparations. 
And so uh, essentially the government is um, the government falls. It's a social democratic government that's also supported by the the centrum, the center, the Catholic Center Party. Um, the government collapses, and a new uh, government is Im- is imposed under the conservative centrum politician Heinrich Brüning, who essentially imposes a form of austerity politics, where he decides the most important thing is Germany's access to foreign credit, and so he's going to prioritize the payments of these Versailles obligations. Um, and cut back on social spending. And so Weimar... Well, he the, also changes the governance structure. of He, he institutes the presidential dictatorship. Uh, right, people, exactly. What people right. don't know is that three years before Hitler was appointed chancellor, German Germany's system was effectively a, a dictatorial democracy. Right. You know, this was strange hybrid, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Democracy essentially collapses at this point in Germany. Basically, there is no parliamentary majority any longer um, for any positive policy. And so uh, what Heinrich Brüning does is he relies on Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which allows the president to declare a state of emergency, which gives the executive sweeping powers. And so the president at this point uh, is, a cons- is a conservative, Paul von Hindenburg, who's sort of the military hero of World War One, As we talked about in previous episodes, he is really one of the instigators of the stab in the back myth, this myth that uh, Germany wasn't defeated in World War One on the battlefield, but actually was defeated by enemies at home, including socialists, Jews, um, you know, labor unions, and so on. So he's he's the president. Heinrich Brüning is the chancellor who he's appointed, um, and they're basically ruling by decree. They're basically instituting a sort of uh, you know soft dictatorship in a sense. And so it's a very unstable situation. They're pursuing austerity politics. This is, of course, deeply unpopular in a state that had had a quite generous welfare state up until this point. And so extremist parties start doing much better, in particular, a up until that point little known party, uh, the National Socialist German Workers Party, or Nazi Party. Uh, And so they, in the 1930 elections, um, jump up in terms of their percentage um, of, of the national vote. They then, in the 1932 elections in 1932, two parliamentary elections. Um, February and, and September. Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yes. 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 Yeah, I still remember. Um, February and September. Yeah. And and there are actually four. The September nas- 32 is the big one because they lose seats, and that's and this is why. Yes. They, yeah. Exactly. And that's the one where the communists keep gaining seats, and so it's seen as this sort of turning point. But ironically, that's exactly what freaks out the conservatives who are running right. the government. The conservatives around Paul von Hindenburg, and they think, "Oh my God, the communists are gaining ground. The Nazis are losing ground. Now is our moment." moment where we have to appoint Hitler chancellor, he will crush the communists, and then we can go back to our sort of traditional conservative, um, anti-democratic form of government. Thank um, goodness they didn't go communist. Am I right? I mean, thank goodness. No. Wow. Yeah, they definitely, you know. Really, really missed it. No. <laughs> Dodged a bullet there. <sighs> I mean, what? Uh, so, so it's it's a clusterfuck to you know use a technical term. Um, it the the left can't agree on anything, right? The social democrats and the communists do not agree on anything. They are not working together, and that basically gives far right parties an opportunity and an opening. Uh, and so, Hitler's appointed chancellor in January of 1933. They immediately call new elections, but these are not free or fair elections. Uh, The Nazis now have control of the Prussian police force, which is the largest police force in Germany. And they use that um, to basically crush the opposition. This is when you get the infamous Reichstag fire in February of 1933. A and there's still sort of theories about who set the Reichstag fire, right? I mean, for yeah, a don't long, people think it was actually the communists now? So yeah, so there's definitely this. I think I'd say the mainstream school of thought is that it was this one um, sort of psychologically troubled Dutch communist um, who sort of did it by himself. He's the one who winds up getting convicted for it, and most historians, I think generally agree, yeah, that's probably what happened. Um, But there are some historians who still think, um, if you look at the sort of circumstantial evidence, he probably had help from Nazis, right? That the Nazis basically manufactured this to uh, help create an emergency. And in fact, what happens after this is that new emergency decrees are instituted, in particular uh, decrees that... um, you know, effectively outlaw the Communist Party that make it much harder for other parties to campaign. 
Um, and even in spite, this is what, what's wild, in spite of this sort of terror campaign, the Nazis only get about 43% of the vote. Their conservative allies get another few percentage points, and so they have a majority, um, but they don't have the two-thirds majority they need to amend the Constitution. And so um, essentially they resort to other shenanigans to, to be able to do that, and that's where we get sort of the Nazi dictatorship. But to sort of rewind in terms of what's going on for queer people in this moment, you so in the 1920s, as we've talked about, it's this flourishing moment, arts, culture, um, you know, there's new f- a new film industry um, that is producing queer films. Uh, and so it seems like a really, um, a moment of opportunity, I would say. And one symbol of this is that the so-called uh, cartel for the reform of the sexual criminal law uh, notches one of its first wins, which is in 1929, a parliamentary committee uh, votes to approve a reform of paragraph 175, which is this law that outlawed homosexuality in Germany. And what they do is they strike paragraph 175 from the law books, but then they introduce a sort of substitute measure which criminalizes qualified forms of homosexuality. So it outlaws male prostitution, it outlaws what it calls the seduction of men uh, and boys under the age of 21. And this in particular is important, this idea of seduction. Uh, And we've talked about this a bit already. Basically, a lot of people at the time believed that homosexuality wasn't a congenital condition, that it wasn't something that was sort of an innate part of your personality, but rather it was sort of behavior that was inculcated in boys and young men at these sort of formative pubescent years. Uh, and so the the terminology that was used at the time was seduction or the seduction of youth. Uh, and so essentially this law tried to criminalize that transmission method of homosexuality or what people thought of as the transmission of homosexuality at the time. So this law is voted on, it's approved in committee on a very narrow vote with uh, sort of leftists, so communists and socialists voting for it, as well as some moderates, um, people from the sort of centrist parties. Uh, But it never, be basically because of the Great Depression, it never gets a hearing in the full parliament, and so it's never voted on. Uh, That said, it does really divide gay activists and advocates at the time. Um, There are some people who see it as a huge victory. This is what they've been striving for. People like Magnus Hirschfeld, who we've talked about, um, really see this as the culmination of his life's work. Other more radical members, such as Kurt Hiller, who's a sort of communist anarchist um, and someone who we might think of as more queer today, uh, he sees it as sort of selling out, right? That you're basically... Um, reinscribing homophobic norms uh, under the guise of decriminalization. Um, so that's really this sort of last um, gasp, I would say, of Weimar gay activism in in the 1920s. So does anything happen between 30 and 33, or is it just the brooding dictatorship and then Hitler? There's not it's, much going yeah, on. Yeah, it's austerity. It's the brooding dictatorship. Um, there's not a lot of sort of milestones. I mean, there are some sort of cultural products. So there's um, a movie called Girls in Uniform that's essentially a movie about a lesbian romance that comes out in this period. You know, there are novels and so forth continue to be published in the early 30s. But there's no sort of um, watershed moment. There's, uh, I think, you know, generally a sense in the country that the economy is sort of what people are focused on, that huge numbers of Germans are out of work, can't find jobs. Um, And again, this is what's driving uh, people to vote for the Nazi party in in large part. Uh, The um, other thing I'll mention is this is the moment when the Social Democrats try to make sort of an electoral strategy of Ernst Röhm's homosexuality, right? This is when they publish these letters where he's professing affection for other men. And as Lori Marhofer has argued in, in their first book, this actually doesn't really seem to hurt the Nazis. People, I think, associate the Nazis as an anti-homosexual, anti-quote-unquote decadence party. Uh, and so even the fact that one one of the the sort of the, the chief of their paramilitary um, is gay doesn't seem to affect them at the polls. So let's step back. Let's pretend it's 1998, and we're going to talk about historical memory. Why do you think Weimar 
and Weimar life has uh, had this, I don't want to say outsized, maybe it's right-sized, but had this influence on sort of the American North Atlantic imagination of early 20th century gay life. I feel like if there's any moment between 1900 and 1950 where people think of gay life, it's going to probably be Weimar Berlin. Uh, or Weimar Germany generally, and then Weimar Berlin, like very specifically. So, what what do you think that is? As as someone who writes on these historically, I mean, cabaret, right, <laughs> is probably the first reason. Chris Christopher Isherwood, who um, is undoubtedly one of the more influential sort of English language novelists, spends a lot of the twenties and early thirties in Berlin, experiencing this culture. So, I do think it. it he, more than any individual person, I think Christopher Isherwood is someone who created this sort of myth, or I, I don't want to say myth, but image of gay Weimar. Um, that said, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of factual or structural reasons why we would think of Weimar as this particularly utopian moment in queer history, um, what, you know, reasons that we've talked about. I think another sort of... Um, Part of the puzzle that maybe gets lost sometimes, um, and this isn't just a gay issue, right? This is, I think, the entire uh, image of Weimar as the cradle of sort of 20th century um, modernism uh, is the reason that a lot of the influential people in Weimar wind up you know, fleeing abroad in the early 1930s. And many of them wind up in the U.S., right? And they have a huge impact on U.S. culture. Um, so everyone from sort of Albert Einstein to Theodore Adorno to Thomas Mann wind Billy up. Billy Wilder, I mean, like all of these people go right. to Hollywood too. Right, I mean, um, you know, Gropius of, of um, Bauhaus. Uh, the Right, Bauhaus um, winds up. So all the you know you can just go on and on and on, and and it it you know extends far down the list into to people who have I think a tremendous impact on intellectual life in the U.S. but aren't necessarily famous today. Um, so it, I think that also has a really marked impression on how queer people think about. Weimar and how it was ultimately sort of received here. Klaus Mann, who I've mentioned and was basically one of the first out gay authors in modern history, he winds up in the U.S. He actually winds up in the U.S. Army during World War II. So, yeah, I, I'd say that those are two of the main reasons. And then, and then one sort of maybe final reason why today we keep returning to Weimar is that it's seen as the birthplace of modern gay politics, right? This notion that sexuality is an integral part of your character, and that's why it shouldn't be criminalized. Um, that, you know, we can trace back to figures like Magnus Hirschfeld and Kurt Hiller um, and other activists in this period. So, you know, I think there are a number of these reasons why the Weimar period has really stayed with us. Um, and we could also get into why it sort of has become a real... I think lodestar for for the sort of democratic imagination, both for its failures and its opportunities. Let's talk about that. Let's stay on Weimar yeah. um, for a second, and I'd also like to talk for a little bit about the exiles before we get into the Nazi yeah. period. Yeah. So, but uh, Sam, what were you going to say about that with Weimar? Oh, just so basically, you know, there's this somewhat flawed notion that Weimar is Germany's first experience with democracy. And that, I, I say flawed because, in fact, the German Empire had a lot of democratic institutions. It's one of the first states to introduce uh, universal male suffrage um, for a national parliament. And there's a really wonderful book uh, about democracy in the imperial era by uh, Peggy Anderson called Practicing Democracy, and it looks at electoral practices in, in imperial Germany. But that notwithstanding, it's still an empire, it still has a Kaiser. And so Weimar is really seen as this first flourishing of democracy in a country that was perceived as being autocratic, primarily. Um, and because of that, I think there's both a sense of the opportunity of it, right? It, it introduced one of the most progressive constitutions in the world at the time, in 1919. Uh, it was a nation created by social, or a, a state created by social democrats, which was also quite remarkable and new. Um, remember, this is really the you know germany is sort of the birthplace of social democracy um it had 
the world's oldest and largest uh, social democratic party. Um, and so seeing it in power was, was quite novel. Uh, it had faced down these, you know, reactionary forces from the military, from far-right paramilitaries, the Fry Corps, uh, so on and so forth. At the same time, though, obviously, it collapses in 1933, and it collapses in what comes to be viewed as a quite sudden manner, in a manner, uh, a matter of years. Uh, and so, you know, if we fast forward to the post-war era, when you have all these individuals, many of whom were active in the politics of the Weimar Republic, sitting around trying to craft a new you know, constitution for West Germany, they're thinking about Weimar both in terms of what it got right and its opportunities, um, but also in terms of what it got wrong and why it collapsed and sort of seeing it as a warning. And so I think that that positioning of it as both the sort of, at both extremes of the opportunities and the dangers of democracy is part of why it's really stuck in our cultural imagination. And as someone who studied Weimar, what's your take on, on on the metaphor? I mean, I've made my position clear. I think it occludes more than it illuminates. But uh, I'm curious what you think. My, my sense is that most people who study Germany, quad Germany, agree with my position. And most people who study like the general period mm-hmm. do not. I don't know what if you if you have any thoughts about that. It's been such a metaphor used in American politics over the last six years. It, oh God. I mean, and that gets into this whole, the whole fascism debate, right? About um, the the is is Trump a fascist debate, which I sort of agree. I think in general is used to obscure more than than illuminate. Um, yeah, I think in general, um, I certainly don't buy into the view that Weimar was somehow doomed to failure. Um, I think you can. You know, as historians, we look back into the past for reasons that things happen, and I think we can obviously look to the origins of Weimar to help explain some of the structural reasons why it collapsed. And I think, you know, we've talked about this, but in particular, the failure to get rid of anti-democratic forces entrenched within the government, within the bureaucracy, uh, in particular within the judiciary, I think that really um, damaged the immediate-term prospects for uh, democracy in Germany. That said, I think there's definitely various, you know, futures. If you're starting out, even from the moment of the Great Depression, there's a future in which the government doesn't embrace austerity politics. There's a future in which the left is able to sort of coalesce and and sort of present a common front against far right forces. Uh, there's a future in which the the centrum, the the Catholic Center Party, doesn't sort of turn right, but instead sort of maintains its commitment to democracy. And so there are all these possible futures branching out from 1929 in which democracy doesn't fail. So I, I don't think there's anything uh, inevitable, and I think most German historians today agree with that. That said, there's been this move to sort of revise the history of Weimar and really. Um, emphasize the sort of golden age between, you know, in the the mid to late 1920s. And I think that too, perhaps overemphasizes the stability um, and de-emphasizes all of the problems that still existed in Weimar from sort of, you know, radical right-wing forces continuing to uh, sort of doubt democracy. I mean, President Hindenburg's victory in 1925 is a really sort of disturbing blow to the institutions of democracy in this so-called golden era of Weimar. Also, the fact that the entire, I mean, not the entire, but a a chunk of the economy and of the welfare state was based on this sort of precarious credit arrangement with the U.S. Um, So, I I don't know. I I guess I have a sort of boringly nuanced view of, of the era as um, neither doomed to failure nor necessarily a sort of shining example of what a democracy can or should be. Can we talk a bit about the exiles? And I was curious if there are mm-hmm. any queer exiles in particular that begin to have effects on queer life outside of uh, Germany and bringing the German traditions to a new context, which happened in basically other uh, every other field as you were gesturing toward, right, from film right. to literature to social science to history, uh, etc. Yeah, that's so. This is something I have sort of gestured to in some of my work. I don't know of anyone that's actually made an effort to sort of trace these connections in a really detailed way. Um, So, 
you know, I've, I've mentioned there are all these authors, queer authors from Weimar, Weimar who flee, um, you know, the Mann family who are intimately associated with sort of queer culture, queer literature in Germany, uh, mostly wind up in the U.S., um, there are various other sort of less prominent authors. Magnus Hirschfeld is actually on a world tour uh, when the Nazis take power, and he never returns to Germany and dies uh, a few years later. Kurt Hiller, I believe, winds up in England. So, you know, the, the, there definitely is this diaspora of queer intellectuals. You know, Marlena Dietrich, who is associated with queer culture, winds up in, in the U.S. film industry. And one thing I've noted um, and noticed is that this is the moment, the early 30s is when you start seeing sort of queer-coded films and novels really appearing in the U.S. Now, this could be sort of serendipitous, um, but it, there could be, I think, an effect there, right? There could be the, this, a sort of influence from Germany. And, and it, it might be through the exiles. It might just also be the fact that Weimar culture more broadly was starting to sort of be disseminated throughout the world, um, even before the Nazis took power, but certainly with the sort of um, the diaspora. So I don't, I, you know, I don't have any concrete evidence to point to, but I do sort of think that there is this gradual influence. And then if we sort of fast forward to the post-war era, the Nazi persecution of queer people, which I know we'll get into, that also provides a sort of template for queer people thinking about their own place in the world, their own place in history. Um, the pink triangle, which is this sort of iconic symbol of Nazi persecution, becomes a symbol of gay liberation, um, a symbol of the fight against AIDS in 1980. So so it's, it's I think, ultimately the ways that queer Weimar is received and recapitulated in the decades afterwards um, does have a lot to do with what then comes after Weimar. So I think we should move on to the Nazis now. And so mm-hmm. Hitler is appointed chancellor in 1933. You gestured toward the process of Gleichschaltung. Maybe you could yes. describe what he's doing, at least in terms of, uh, you know, creating this Nazi community, this ethno-racial community in the first years and how queer people fit into that broader history. Yeah, no, um, definitely. So uh, basically, you know, the Nazis are a far-right anti-Semitic party, and and anti-Semitism is generally agreed to be really at the, you know, that's the sort of intellectual center of the party, if, if you want to call it that. That's really what their program is about. Um, but tangentially related to that, it's, you know, it's it's also an anti-communist party. It's also a party that rails against, as we talked about last episode, um, quote-unquote, decadence. Um, it's a party, it's misogynistic. It, it advocates a very traditional place, a quote-unquote traditional place for women as wives and mothers sort of in the home, not working. Um, so what Hitler does, he takes power, he calls these elections. Um, long story short, uh, the new parliament that um, you know is, that convenes as a result of these fraudulent elections uh, passes what's known as the Enabling Act, which basically allows Hitler and the cabinet to pass laws without the approval of parliament. So this basically institutes, it amends the constitution to institute a dictatorship, um, which then very quickly becomes a one-party dictatorship as Hitler outlaws every party other than the Nazi party. This begins, as you mentioned, a process of Gleichschaltung or coordination. This is essentially a process of purging the government of perceived enemies. One of the very first laws that they enact is a law for the sort of quote-unquote reformation of the civil service. And what this does is it purges the civil service of Jews uh, as well as of leftists, so communists and and social democrats. Um, And this is just really a first salvo in an effort to make sure that everyone is at least outwardly on board with Nazi ideology um, and that this process of removing quote-unquote Jewish influences from German life, th- this is how it starts. Sam, I'm, I'm, I wonder if we could talk for a, a minute um, as we're in this sort of pre, let's say, Night of the Long Knives period about the origins of 
the gay Nazi myth, which continues mm-hmm. to the present day. I mean, it's still, you know, uh, something that people on the right here in the United States, certainly, and I, I'm sure elsewhere, uh, hold that, that somehow all the Nazis, all the Nazi top officials were gay. And, uh, you know, this is a, they're, they're intimately connected. Th- this goes back, though, to something you alluded to earlier, which is this was one of the attacks that the communists and the, the social democrats tried to use politically uh, mm-hmm. against the Nazis. I'm curious why they did that. If you could talk a little bit about what were the sort of streams of, of politics that, that, I mean, they must have thought this was an effective kind of thing to bring up. What were the, what were the sort of political strands that fed into that? Yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot there, right? I mean, as you, as you mentioned, it's still this myth today that, that the Nazi party was a, essentially a gay movement, that the leaders were gay. Um, I think the one piece of sort of factual evidence that people keep coming back to is that Ernst Brum, the chief of staff of the stormtroopers, was a gay man. Um, you know, that that is true. And there were certainly other queer men in within the stormtroopers, right? And as we sort of have talked about in previous episodes, there was this allure um, on the part of queer men who didn't see their affection or desire for other men as a source of weakness or femininity, but rather saw it as evidence of their sort of hyper-masculinity. And so this is sort of this uh, masculinist take on homoeroticism or homosexuality that was quite prevalent in the Weimar years and before, before Weimar. So there's this whole nexus of um, views around homosexuality that really ties it quite closely to the far right and to these sort of patriarchal and misogynistic views about society and about men's place in society. So there is that sort of nexus that exists within the Nazi party. Um, At the same time, I think there's a host of other things that sort of get drawn into this stereotype. Um, Part of it is that people, you know, look at Nazi leaders and think that physically and how they behave. They sort of maybe behave effeminately. Um, again, these are stereotypes that get sort of um, brought up as, as quote-unquote evidence that, that they were gay. The fact that Hitler was an unmarried man um, is also sometimes brought up um, as, as quote-unquote evidence. Um, so there are these pieces. Uh, and then, you know, as you mentioned, it is sort of the stereotype on the left um, I believe, uh, I'm forgetting which Soviet writer uh, said in the 30s something to the effect of, if you root out homosexuality, uh, you'll root out fascism. And so there is this assumption, Klaus Mann actually, uh, the the author, he writes an essay uh, in which he makes the claim that homosexuals are the quote-unquote Jews of the anti-fascists, by which he means that uh, the left is sort of scapegoating queer people in the same way that the right was scapegoating Jews. It's a slightly overwrought position, but it does sort of get at the fact that um, the sort of Stalinist left had become deeply homophobic. I mean, uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, Stalin recriminalizes homosexuality in the 1930s, and in fact uses many of these same stereotypes as a reason to do so. This notion that queer people are fascists, that they're spies, that they're in cahoots with sort of German agents. Um, and in fact, there's a myth or a notion that uh, van der Lubbe, the, the Dutch communist who allegedly set fire to the Reichstag, was gay and had been sort of involved in some sort of relationship with other with, with men in the SA, and that that is how the Reichstag fire had, had come about. So there, there's this whole sort of nexus of conspiracies and um, sort of half-baked observations that, that has given life to the myth of the gay Nazi or the, the myth that, that Nazism was a gay movement. So let's build on that for a second and, and talk about a topic that's related, perhaps a bit tangentially, but I don't think we'll ever be able to talk about it. And you know what I'm about to say, Sam, Hitler's sexuality. <laughs> so um, I remember, I don't know if you recall this, but I think in the late 90s or early 2000s, a book came out called The Hidden Hitler, which I think made the argument that Hitler was a repressed uh, homosexual. 
Um, and this has also been uh, a myth that that has come up time and again, but really in, in relation to Hitler's sexuality with re- w- with regards impotence, with regards to having only one testicle. Um, and this was actually a major effort by U.S. intelligence agencies during World mm-hmm. War II mm-hmm. to find out what exactly was going on with Hitler's penis, literally. Like, they, they had a, a whole yeah. dossier um, on, on Hitler, and, and this was one of the entries on it. So... Could you talk about the Hitler sexuality issue because it occupies such a central place in when in, in the in the North Atlantic imagination for people who think about World War II and Nazis? Can I just say, imagine being the guy who has to keep the Hitler <laughs> folder at the CIA, and you have to put that tab in that's like Hitler's penis in that folder. That's that's it's, amazing. And they got pictures from the Soviets, or they they intercepted pictures of the body, and then there was a lot of like. There's a medical examination on him that that becomes really important in, in Holocaust mm-hmm. explanations in the 40s and the 50s. So I, I know to us it seems like a ridiculous subject, but people took it very seriously, influenced oh, by yeah. Freudian psychoanalysis and, and all this stuff. Yeah, and people still talk about it. People still, you know, sort of speculate as to whether or not he's gay. I mean, I think my basic view is there's not really any evidence that he was gay, right? I mean, there's these sort of weird speculations about why he was a bachelor and and I don't know whether or not he had one testicle or what the size of his penis was or, you know, there, there are all these sort of um, speculative endeavors to try and think about his sexuality, but there's not actually any evidence we have that he was gay. Um, and then the other, you know, at the end of the day, I think it, it all feeds into or as part of a larger effort to understand Hitler as a sort of uniquely evil person and trying to find some sort of physical or psychological explanation for that. Um, And so at the end of the day, I think most German historians think of Hitler as, you know, another human being uh, like the rest of us with certain skills and certain, you know, lacks of skills and certainly a ferociously anti-Semitic view of the world, but ultimately, you know, still a human. And so um, I think, you know, among German historians and German historians who deal with, with sexuality, the whole notion that, that Hitler's sexuality is something worth speculating about, it's not really done. It's not something that really comes up much in the scholarship. Um, And it's because there isn't any, interesting evidence to talk about. And there's no notion, there's no evidence that how he thought about his sexuality um, informed anything else. Uh, and so, you know, unlike Ernst Röhm, where his sexuality does play a major role in seemingly why he joins the brown shirts, why, you know, how uh, the SPD tries to harm the electoral chances of um, the Nazis, how uh, Hitler, you know, ultimately decides to um, purge Rome and and justify that purge. You know, sexuality is, is intimately bound up with, with all of those developments um, in a way that Hitler's sexuality is not really seemingly relevant to this history. That's interesting because at least in U.S. history, which is kind of the field I migrated to, people write about JFK's sexuality. People write about other presidents' sexuality. So, I mean, I, I, it is, it is. I think there's in German his, history. I think there's a bit of a like a taboo because it seems like a little lower in pop and stuff. But I mean, sexuality is important to a person, right? Sure, sure. It's, it, and I'm not trying to say it's not important to a person, but it's just um, there isn't actually that. When it comes to these speculations that Hitler was gay, um, oh, the gay stuff, yeah, I'm just talking right, about the sexuality. There's, no, there's nothing with yeah, I'm yeah. Just talking about the sexuality. Is there is oh, there sure. anything related as his story as a uh, historian of sexuality? Is there anything interesting? The last I remember, there's the Gelly Rebel affair. His his like niece or kind of niece. Uh, there's the he slept with like seven women. I think they've docked like including Lenny Reffenstahl. Last last I checked, is there anything? there or is that just is it just like it's not an explanatory variable at all i i would tend to not think of it as an explanatory variable. i mean i think you can look to so many other experiences in his life um right in particular like his professional failures in vienna and and you know i think i think his time in vienna and his time 
um, in World War One are much more illuminating sort of psychological explanations for who he was and, and what he became um, than than sort of at least from the evidence I've seen uh, than than his sexuality. And kind of building off professional failures, I think mm-hmm. one one reason that um, there's been an association in uh, people's minds between uh, queer life and the Nazis is also the Nazis' obsession with aesthetics, which I think mm-hmm. has been coded mm-hmm. as queer in North Atlantic life, generally speaking, because yes. that was a space where queer people could really, you know, thrive. So I was wondering if there's if there's anything there, because I, I that's oftentimes how I see it also. Like, people joke, like, the Nazis had a great sense of style, you know, something along right. those <laughs> lines, right? And that's, like, I think, because queerness has been coded as having good aesthetics, mm-hmm. You know whether that yes. relates to you yes. know anything in reality no, no. or not. I think that's I think both style right and you'll um, you know I've at least heard um, you know jokes about you know like black being a slimming color and you know the SS wears black and, and things and like Bowie and, you know, wore like Nazi outfits. The punks yeah. wore Nazi outfits well, in the seventy for for aesthetic purposes. There's something and this there. is you know there's a whole subculture in the cold war um i mean not a whole subculture but but part of the sort of leather scene is a sort of obsession with with nazis um in in the the post-war period so so yeah that's definitely there um i you know i would say there's just this there is an incredible amount of homoeroticism in within the nazi movement right And, and we've talked about this this is part of what makes it appealing to young single men whether or not you would define these people as gay today or whether or not they would have been or, or if they were alive today, if they would define themselves as gay. There is this element of sort of homoerotic camaraderie um, that the Nazi party is selling. That's part of you know why it is appealing to all these men who were demobilized after World War II and sort of missed the experiences of the trenches. Um, and so if you look at like the posters of the Nazi movement, they're incredibly homoerotic. You have these sort of big shirtless muscular men who are, you know, building German industry or fighting Jews or yeah, proto Tom of Finland thing. stuff, which he has yes. also himself been accused of using fascist aesthetics. If I, right. Oh, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, it, with Tom and Finland, Finland is sort of, you know, the, um, prime example of this uh, tendency after World War II to sort of aestheticize and fetishize uh, national socialism in, in the gay community. So, so yeah, there's definitely that element to it as well. There's this sort of homoerotic visual element, which is, um, you know, this is sort of the step that people then don't make. That precisely is why the Nazis are such a homophobic, homophobic movement, is precisely because they understand that there is something appealing about them to a certain set of queer people, and they are afraid of that. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, as I mentioned, the Nazis in the Weimar period are opposed to anything that sort of smacks of modernity. So they're against female suffrage. They're against women out working outside of the home. They're against non-heterosexual relationships. Um, but that takes on this... Um, enhanced quality in the Nazi period precisely because of the sort of innate homoeroticism of the Nazi movement. So, Sam, I think where we'll try to end here is with the Night of the Long Knives and kind mm-hmm. of the, you know, the, the turn to overt kind of homophobic or homo- right. homosexual persecution. Uh, but I'm curious in this, in, in, in the initial years here with Rome, obviously, uh, you know, being homosexual and being a high-ranking official in the Nazi party, Hitler, you know, leaving aside his own predilections, whatever they were, um, you know, having a, a relation, working relationship with him. What, how, how did that relationship work? How tense was this sort of fit between? Because um, obviously, as you've said in you know, earlier in this interview and in, in previous uh, inter- you know episodes, there is this kind of strand of the homosexual. Uh, scene, I guess, in, in Weimar Germany that's very hyper-masculine, feeds mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. into sort of Nazism. But, and so that's a source of manpower, you know, potentially, but uh, there is this kind of uncomfortable fit here, and I'm curious how that worked in practice. Yeah, I mean, so Hitler, I mean, this is another piece of, you know, quote-unquote evidence that is used to speculate about 
Hitler being gay, which is that it doesn't seem that for him personally, there was any particular issue here. Um, Certainly, you know, we know that from a political perspective, Hitler was homophobic, but uh, Rum was one of his closest friends in the movement. Again, they had both joined the party very early on in its existence. Um, Rum was one of the few people who used the informal du uh, as opposed to Z, which is the formal U uh, in German. And so they were quite close. And so in terms of sort of Hitler's relationship, it didn't appear at the time that there was much, um, you know, that, that, that there was any tenseness between them. Um, and this is further sort of reinforced when the Social Democrats try to smear the Nazis with, with Rome's uh, homosexuality. Um, it, it doesn't seem that Hitler you know, turns on Rome in, in any meaningful way during this episode. Uh, so that, though, I think changes after the Nazis take power. And it doesn't really change because of Rome's sexuality. I think that's one of the important points is that the Night of Long Knives, which is June of 1934, it takes place because of how the stormtroopers, the SA, fit into the Nazi movement and the Nazi government Sim. Yeah. Yes, but also the sexuality didn't help. Yes, of course. The sexuality didn't help. And it right. provided. I mean, even- that's that was my take on it. I mean, obviously, he's trying to consolidate and run over the military in particular at that time and the police forces. But my right. take on that was also that, like, when Rome is like in that cell and he's like, because they, they were vicious to him, they were like very homophobic, I think, in those final, yeah. those final hours from what I remember, yeah. right? No, you're you're completely correct. I mean, there there is a huge amount of homophobia in the Nazi party already, right? It doesn't just get fabricated out of thin air. And so the fact that Rome is a gay man does not help him. It's certainly a source of Heinrich Himmler's sort of distaste or, or hatred for him. Um, so it, it does not help. Uh, but so basically, you know, the 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 SA is a working fundamentally a sort of working class organization within the Nazi Party. Um, it's sort of the rabble rousers. It's the paramilitary, and it swells in size massively in the early 30s um, to the point that I would have to double check, but I believe it's about two million members um, by like 1933. And so it's huge. It's much bigger than the official military. Um, and because you know, and the other thing about Nazi ideology. When the Nazis are campaigning in the Weimar period, they are essentially ideological chameleons, right? I mean, again, anti-Semitism is very much the key point, um, as is anti-communism. But in terms of what they are saying they want to do once in power, they're borrowing from everyone, right? They're a nationalist party. They're talking about you know, reestablishing Germany's prestige internationally, pulling out of the Treaty of Versailles, sort of avenging the defeat of World War I. But they're also pulling from leftist parties. They're talking about making sure that everyone has um, an equal wage. They're talking about disappropriating uh, people who um, made, um, you know, Profits in World War One, war profiteers. Uh, they're they're borrowing these talking points from the sort of uh, the socialist left, and so um, they're drawing in people who are picking up on different tidbits, different pieces of this. And the essay is very much um, on the sort of more leftist side. It, it it is populated by working class men who really believe in the sort of leftist bits, tidbits in in the sort of Nazi ideology. This is the sort of socialist part of national socialism. Um, the problem with that for Rome and for other Nazi leaders is that uh, in the 30s in particular, Hitler and other top Nazis, and you know, such as Goering, really ally the party with big industry, big industrialists. They rely on these incredibly wealthy individuals to bankroll their electoral campaigns. And so once they're in power, you know, they basically owe these people and they're going to govern as, you know, sort of pro-industry conservatives. They're very much interested in crushing uh, the labor movement. In fact, they abolish all labor unions and consolidate them into um, the uh, German uh, workers' front, um, uh, which is officially a labor union, but really a way of sort of controlling and keeping tabs on workers. Um, 
And so you then have this massive paramilitary organization populated by people who don't want to go that direction, who want a sort of second revolution. Um, And on top of that, they pose a threat to the traditional military simply because of their size, because, you know, it's this massive organization. And so because of these reasons, uh, and and then I guess the final reason is that, you know, the essay is very effective at brawling in public, at street fighting. And this is part of how the Nazis come to power, is staging these street fights with, with communists, usually. Um, once they're in power, though, they are the, quote-unquote, you know, party of law and order, and they need to establish order and show the Germans that they're sort of getting a grip with all these different social and economic crises of the Weimar Republic, and that's sort of the source of their legitimacy. And there's not really a place for a large brawling paramilitary unit in in that order. So for all of these reasons, Hitler eventually makes the decision that the stormtroopers need to be brought to heel, uh, that Rome needs to go, uh, that his other sort of top leadership needs to go. And at the same time, he decides to get rid of the sort of traditional conservative elites, the other sort of leadership that had really helped bring him to power. Um, and so over a couple nights in the summer of 1934, um, he institutes a purge, which is known as the Night of Long Knives. Uh, and in, you know, the sort of main target is Ernst Röhm. He's arrested. Um, he's taken to prison and told uh, to, um, you know, that Hitler wants him to commit suicide and, and is given a loaded revolver. Uh, but he refuses and, you know, says that Hitler can come and say that to him himself. Uh, and so two SS men uh, murder Röhm as part of this. Um, There are many other people who are arrested or murdered. Um, The former chancellor, uh, uh, Franz von Papen, many of his close aides are murdered, uh, and he himself is arrested, even though he is still technically the vice chancellor. He's arrested, um, and then he he survives, though, and is eventually sent to uh, Vienna as the Nazi's ambassador to Austria. Anyway, point is, though, this is a moment um, when homosexuality starts to come to the forefront of how the Nazis are thinking um, about men in their own movement and about sort of sexuality more broadly. Um, They'd already sort of up to that point started moving against Weimar gay institutions. They had shut down magazines and bars. Um, They had shut down Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for the Study of of Sexual Sciences um, and burned its library. But after the Night of Long Knives, that really marks a stark turning point in the persecution of gay men in Nazi Germany. Well, on that horrible note, let's end. Sam Hunicke, author of States of Liberation, thank you so much, and we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you so much for having me.